Uh, we got another beautiful conversation today. Mandy Burnett is here. We cover so much today. We're talking about free mom hugs. Uh, we're talking about uh, being a Mormon, having children, being married, drag queens. Lots packed into this hour and three minutes. So uh, stick with us. Everything is fueled from me wanting to be a better person on Earth. It's time to do your part. I don't want you to dream. I want you to do it. Tap into the conversation. Check one, two. As we cover the latest issues affecting our communities and the world. It is absolutely vital that the truth comes out. Resolve your unconscious bias and grow from firsthand experiences. Is your mind truly free or is it caged? This is Do Your Part with Brian Gallo. As well, it's like you know, people want to see mistakes because it shows that you're human. Totally right. Nobody yeah. likes a perfect patty. All right, five, four, three, two, one. I do. I always sing when I'm super excited and elated, and today I'm that. I'm equally excited for all of my guests, but today there's a cherry on top. I've got Mandy Burnett here. She's a good friend of mine. I've known her for quite some time. I think we just realized it's been 15 years. Mm -hmm. It has. And uh, I'm just stoked, so thank you for being here. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Now, you followed the podcast, so you know my first question, and we talked about this a moment ago, but when I asked you to be here, why did you say yes? I have loved your podcast and I love listening to everybody else's backstories and sort of how they came to be where they are today. Mm -hmm. And I realized that in part of my story, who I was at 20 or in my 20s when you and I met and who I am now at 44 is really very different. And the biggest thing I did to do my part or to to make a difference was to actually change my mind. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to be able to share that story a little bit and talk about how it's critical to change your mind. It's uh, everybody is invited to the process of evolution, mm, right? Mm. We all get to to show up and change if we want to. And everyone loves an invite. Yeah, right. You're all yes. You're all invited. You've all been invited. <laughs> uh, but I think it's really important, and it's an important part of my story to be able to do better now mm-hmm. because of the choices I made before. And it's interesting because, as I said a moment ago, the takeaway for most people, I think, from this jam-packed hour is going to be that you can change your mind yeah you know we're so i've been always told like he can't change his mind you know you're set in your ways and it's just not possible and the truth is that's why we're here is to just learn and you know get excited it's a good thing so thank you for that i can't thank you enough so let's move right into your backstory tell me a bit about you from like early early on five six seven eight and let's uh, paint a picture for the listeners and viewers sure so i grew up in a really big family i'm the oldest daughter of and the oldest granddaughter of 45 odd cousins i think <laughs> right big okay. family yeah. um big mormon family and so we are all in this very strict very constrained religion mm-hmm. and that was such a huge part of our community that it was just sort of part of our identity. Where was this? Where were you living? Northern California. Gotcha. So I grew up in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley. Okay, go ahead. And so as we were raised, we were raised to believe certain things and very specific code of conduct and how people are supposed to act. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't act that way, you weren't going to be as uh, 
blessed in heaven or whatever you want to call it, you weren't going to be graced with the best possible outcome. So you still get there. You're just not going to get VIP. Correct. Okay. Yeah. There is. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> you know me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I was raised that way. But at the same time, my mom and my grandmother were both really successful business women mm-hmm. outside of the home, which was very abnormal for Mormon women, especially mm-hmm. at the time. And so as a teenager, I noticed how people acted towards them. They didn't t- necessarily like my mom and grandma at times at church and I realized that I was really uncomfortable not being liked and I didn't want to rock the boat Mm. and so I watched them rock it a little and decided that you know if they were on one side of the pendulum I was going to swing to the other and I was Mm. just going to be nice follow the rules yeah do the stuff which then meant that I was 19 getting married and 20 having a baby wow because that kind of comes with all of that right it does that's the that's the path now you know certainly you can get married when you're older, when you're Mormon. And there are a great deal of really great people that are still active in the church that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, but the messages I got really contributed to this is how we do it. It's the only way we do it. And you're either right or die or you're out. Talk about some of those messages. Sure. So um, basic things like uh, obviously we don't drink, don't smoke. Um, women were prioritized to be in the home and have children. Men were in charge of the homes because they were the patriarch of the home. Let me stop you real quick. Mm -hmm. So as you just said a moment ago, with your mother and grandmother being progressive and working in business, if that that's one of the biggest rules to break, right? Yeah, it was a it was very taboo. uh, Watching them go through it, which was bizarre, because in the outside world, they both did extraordinarily well Mm -hmm. in their industries. They were award winners, they did big, huge things. So outside of the church, they were very applauded and Mm -hmm. inside of the church I remember both of them sort of downplaying a little bit what they did oh this small family business or Mm -hmm. oh this little thing and they didn't talk about it a lot and I learned that you're not supposed to be big you're not supposed to do anything other than be a good mom I wonder what conflicted within your mom to want to go ahead and still uh, take that road and challenge yourself to be a powerful businesswoman instead of following the rules of religion. Yeah. I mean, because you followed the rules of religion. Oh, to a T. Right. For a good chunk of my life, yeah. Did your mother resent you for that? I think it was hard for mm-hmm. us a little bit when I was in my 20s and I was having children because as she was starting to be disillusioned with the church and leave, I was really doubling down. Yeah. And I think I was very difficult to love at that point. I'd like to say it was the other way around. It was not. Mm. Um, but also, you know... <laughs> People either have it or they don't. And if you have that entrepreneurial, I want to go do something. My mm-hmm. mom started out of necessity mm-hmm. and then she hit the ground running and was great at it. So wow. she, that was who she was. So it wasn't her plan, Couldn't as you said. Back. It started from necessity. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you have that same entrepreneurial uh, blood coursing through your veins. All right, so thank you for letting me interrupt you. Yeah. So let's jump back in, okay? Great. So I get married uh, and as I'm getting married, my parents are splitting up. Um, wow. I am quickly a mom to a few children. Mm-hmm. And in that process, my mom and my sisters start leaving the church. I'm the oldest of four girls at that point. And they all take turns leaving. And they've left some angry, some not so angry, but there becomes this divide. Mm-hmm. And as within the household, within my, well, no, within the Oh, because you had moved of, out. Yeah, I'd already moved out. So, but we lived close. So mm-hmm. it was me and my family. My kids and my husband were super Mormon and they were on their way out and it was very disruptive to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it. It didn't feel good. I felt a little bit betrayed. Like the people that taught me this are now leaving it because yeah. both of my parents had left. 
And I doubled down and I decided that if you were not in, then you were out. Mm -hmm. And I was somehow righteous enough that I was going to correct you all and tell you all all of your wrongs and how Mm -hmm. you did things. Which goes uh, in line with the beliefs. It does because, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think that the Mormon church actively teaches that you should go around judging people, but Mm -hmm. the byproduct of how they preach their message is very much uh, in judgment of those who don't live the same way. And that's religion. Yeah, it is. It really is. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there became just a little bit of a divide. It it was at that point, the one big sticking point that really has pushed me to want to reach out and have this conversation with you publicly is that in 2000, there was a proposition, Proposition 22, that was Mm -hmm. being voted on about gay marriage. And I was uh, 24 it was the first time I remember voting. It, voting was not really important to mm-hmm. me when I was younger. It was never talked about. And I remember sitting in church on a Sunday and the, the pastor, the we call him the bishop, the, mm-hmm. the lead of the congregation was reading a letter from church headquarters telling us that we needed to vote for Prop 22 so that gay marriage would fail mm-hmm. so that we could protect marriage between a man and a woman and that that was what was going to protect our families. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting there feeling like, yeah, this feels weird. It doesn't feel right that somebody from a pulpit should tell me how to vote. Mm. But I did what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And they said, this is what you do. I remember vividly going into the ballot box. I remember still being just just uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and thinking that nobody would know. I didn't have to vote. I could just leave it blank. Right. And I was so inundated with this fear of not doing the right thing as the church says, that I did. I voted against gay marriage, and it passed. We, it it took out mm-hmm. gay marriage. Yeah, I remember, yeah. And from that point, from 24 to 30, it was just a series of little cracks that felt really uncomfortable, that didn't feel like everything was quite right, mm-hmm. but it wasn't wrong enough. And I didn't, I was too scared to ask questions. I, I It was such a part of my identity that if I were to start saying, what about, mm-hmm. or what if, then I had to question everything, and that was just too scary. Mm-hmm. So right, then was, the doors kicked open. Totally, and mm-hmm. so instead I was just angry and judgmental. So yeah. I, I stood on that. I wanted to die on that hill. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, hardcore Molly Mormon, did all the right things. I was, you know. Uh, what I'm hearing is conviction. I mean, again, I, totally. I, I, once, once you and I connected, we've always stayed connected. You and mm-hmm. I have this kind of kindred uh, kind of connection. And I'm just hearing that that's part of who you are. You know, when you yeah. commit, you commit. So, um, all right, so... Keep going, because I, I'm excited to hear how, you know, because it sounds like the seed was planted yeah. with um, Prop 22. Mm-hmm. That's when you really started to say, okay, something isn't feeling right. So go yeah, ahead. Yeah, it doesn't feel right. And ironically, so that was uh, 20 years ago. I did not tell anybody about that mm-hmm. until about a year ago mm-hmm. when I had a conversation with my kids and we talked about going to the Pride Parade. And anyway. And that's another conversation because totally. you're the mom that goes out there with, uh, you had a shirt on that said. Free mom hugs. I mean, the, this kind of stuff made national or international yeah. news. And yeah. this is the kind of person you are. Yes. I mean, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. I feel like a way better human being. I'll tell you that. Man, <laughs> I mean, like, it's just from speaking from my community, like a huge fucking thank you. Pardon my French. Like huge. Because that you are the people that really make the difference. It's not people like me. Yeah. You know, I'm gay, so I'm already, you're over there. It's people like you that people listen to. So thank you. I love you. Go on. I love you too. So, uh, you know, more kids in the mix. I ended up at 30 with one, two, three, four. I have to count. I had four kids at 30. (laughs) 
That's awful. Four kids. Uh, my mom and I went on a trip to Africa. Oh my God, I feel like I kind of remember this. It's the first time I left the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going on this excursion trip to see a solar eclipse. But as a byproduct, we would go through all the towns of Africa or of uh, Ghana. We were in Ghana and we started mm-hmm. in Accra and then we would work our way out to a much more remote area. And the one thing I will never, ever, ever forget is sitting on a tour bus and looking down a street and there are these little, uh, I don't even know what they technically call them, but uh, four-walled houses. Mm-hmm. They're very small. Mm-hmm. Two women sitting out front and their kids were playing back and forth. And I knew that what they were talking about was probably exactly what my girlfriend and I were talking about when I was back home because we lived across the street and we'd sit there and talk and our kids would run back and forth. And it was so eye-opening to just be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We are not different. Right. We are not that different. Like they meant live differently, dress differently, speak differently. There was no difference. Right. They were talking about how irritated they were about their husbands (laughs) and what their kids were doing. Like (laughs) we are the same. Importance of travel, everybody. Oh, importance it's so of important. travel. Oh, it's so important. I love that you can pinpoint all of these moments in your life that were just like, uh, that again, uh, yeah. b- b- part of your, your change. Totally. And you know what? That's because lots of therapy. Lots and lots and lots of therapy. Well, but okay, that's fair. But also one could say that going to Africa and taking the time to see another culture could be uh, therapeutic and therapy. Totally. I want to include one thing, and I think that this is uh, something that people don't think about, is when we look at our lives and our luxuries, and then we see images of people in Africa without those we feel bad for them yeah. but you know firsthand in essence that that is that's the equivalent right yeah. they're just as happy and just as content as we are without a cell phone without a car you know what I mean I would say I would actually hedge a bet that they are probably more fulfilled and more happy I know when I came back it was really uncomfortable to come back into super consumerism area because mm-hmm. I mean we went pretty far out to a remote village where there was one hospital for you know, hundreds of miles. Right. And it was, it, we went as remote as you could probably safely go. Mm-hmm. And those people were happy. Right. And I came back to all the shit that we have on our cupboards and right. cabinets and the cars and the stuff. And it just and felt. the bills and the. Yeah. And it was so much. Yeah. It was so much. And it is a lot. That's why, that's what stress is for us. It is a lot. Yeah. Ooh, I'm learning a lot. Um, I just think it's so funny. Like I'm picturing these two women, but I'm picturing you and your friend, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So continue. Please. All right. So then I decided I came back. Life changed a little bit for me. Things just, I wasn't really as content with just letting the status quo be. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was married to a man who was addicted to pornography. Mm. And I'd always known that we'd struggled with it. He struggled with it, but it became more and more and more of an issue. And I couldn't. So you were aware Stay. of it and you tried to still uh, work around it. Totally. Tried to fix it. For, tried to fix him. Then Popular. tried to fix This is very prevalent. It really is. And it's not, I always say to people, this is something that happened when pornography actually cost money. So we were, he was spending thousands of dollars on pornography every month that I was unaware of initially. And then when I did find out, I did the typical female thing to do when there's an addict involved you try to fix him. So I tried to fix him. I tried to fix the situation. Let me interrupt. By trying to fix him, what did that look like? What were you doing? Oh my gosh, I was nuts. I was crazy. Well, yeah, your return makes you neurotic. It does. So I would- Been there, done that. I would monitor the computers. I would monitor Mm. what time he was awake and what time he was asleep. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and set alarms just to check and see if he was awake. Like I was nuts. So this wasn't necessarily changing him. This was was just things that you would do to get crazy and paranoid. Yeah, Yeah. thinking that I can control it. Couldn't control anything. Got it. 
So it's this perfect storm of all this stuff. The cracks in the church are happening, and then I have this relationship that's supposed to be great and wonderful because it's all sanctioned by the church, but it's not. And I also can't talk to anybody about it because in the church, we don't really talk about the bad things. We talk about the good things, and we're happy people, and we are joyful, and if something bad happens, it's for a reason, and we have to work it out, but we don't, like, air our dirty laundry. Is that normal within religion? I've never heard, I've, like, Catholicism, you go and air your dirty laundry. Is this normal? I guess it I is normal. I don't know. No, the, I guess it is, because you want to... Kind wanna, of. Yeah. Like, we all have a perception, but if you, I guarantee you, if a typical listener thinks about a Mormon family, there's a, there's a look, right? There's blonde hair, blue eyes, they wear white shirts and denim. There's a there's a picture that's carefully crafted, yeah. and I felt that I had to maintain that, mm-hmm. and the support in the society that I was in supported that I had to maintain that image. Yeah, and so I tried to be perfect, and all of this started. And was happening. he closed off this whole time? Was he trying to uh, nurture the relationship? Was he apologizing? Was he help, holding himself culpable? Was- yeah. A little bit of both. Uh-huh. He tried to work on himself. I tried to work on myself. It got really clear that as I worked on myself with actually a therapist that's probably known to your some of your listeners, Richard mm-hmm. Lipfield. He ended up retiring in the desert. Oh, wow. So he did a lot of work down here. Hey, Richard. He just passed away a couple oh, months ago. Rest in peace. Oh, he's amazing. He changed my life. Uh-huh. Um, huge legacy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he and I started working together and I realized that there were things I needed to do to change so that I could be a happy person. Yeah. And it was the first person I spoke to that gave me permission to change my mind on something that I had just happened to learn growing up and didn't choose. So it was the first time someone really pushed me on a belief in the church or a belief in how my family should operate and called me out on it and said, well, yeah, you can choose to believe those things or you can choose different. You don't have to stay where you are. And blew my mind. So that theory hadn't even crossed your mind? That no. you could essentially just change your mind? If you changed your mind, you were wrong. If you changed your mind, you were broken. If you so changed th- your mind, you just wanted to go out and sin. So can we just call this what it is? I mean, this is the definition of like brainwashing and kind of like programming, right? It felt like a lot of programming. I, I shy away a little bit for brainwashing uh-huh. only because I have a great deal of people that are still in the church that I love and admire uh-huh. that are doing really good things and trying to change the church uh-huh. from within. And the church is full of imperfect people. Yeah. But the way it worked for me and my personality, I definitely felt like I got messages that I am still at 44 trying to untangle about how I should be. Mm-hmm. But I, I know that you're still on target, so thank God I want to ask you one more question. Yeah. What about your uh, siblings? Are you? Do you worry about trying to make sure that they're kind of coming with you, or is, is it everybody for themselves, or how does that work? It's, you know, it's so interesting. I've had to make a lot of amends in my later years for the way I treated them when I was in my 20s. I very much felt like I was the oldest, and so I was responsible to carry the banner. Mm -hmm. And so in that, there was zero love and a ton of shame. I would Mm. shame them. I would tell them they were wrong. I'd be irritated with them. I was closed off. Um, I would show up to family functions, and I'm sure they were relieved when I left because mm-hmm. I was just judgy, and I was a Karen. I was a Karen. That's what it is. I mm-hmm. was I was that kind of person that would come in and make a stink and be like, you're all wrong. But it was all because you were unhappy. Totally. Yeah. Right, and there's, some, there's something called identity fusion that I learned about recently. I never heard this. Oh, you Google it. I'll send you some cool articles. Okay. They, it's an amazing concept that when people are so into a either their group or a religion or something with a charismatic leader so you see it sometimes in like mlm Mm -hmm. multi-level marketing groups or you see it now even with politics Mm -hmm. when they are so 
in to that part of their identity, they can't distinguish themselves apart from it. And so when somebody attacks the church or the group you're in or the political leader that you're supporting, it's as though they've attacked you personally. And you can and you come from that space where you're fused in that identity and so you start reacting in ways that are defending parts that are sometimes abhorrent. Like we say it a lot with I don't know how political we talk about on this podcast or not, but there are certain groups. Feel free to speak as open as you'd like. Great. So a lot of Trump supporters Mm -hmm. I've seen be willing to go mob mentality and not pay attention to how they really feel because Mm -hmm. they felt attacked and so they have to sort of double down. Yeah. And then I've also seen the opposite where people are willing to change their minds. So for me, it became this place where I knew what my identity was hinging on and Mm -hmm. it was breaking Mm -hmm. the I didn't believe in fighting against gay marriage. I didn't believe that my marriage was going to be forever because it was unhappy. I didn't believe, or I started to not believe, that my mom and my sisters were not that bad. They Mm -hmm. just made different choices. And I got to the point where I decided I didn't want to teach my kids that anymore, that it wasn't conducive to them to learn the way I learned and to keep going. Yeah. So at 31, I blew everything up. I divorced my husband. I left the church. I packed my kids and myself into a U-Haul and I left Southern Cal- or Northern California, moved to LA, and I left my family of origin. So I was now putting distance, the only distance that any of us had ever put between my mom and my sisters and I. And I started over and it was messy and it was rough and I made a lot of mistakes and I kind of had what I would compare to like an Amish uh, shoot, what's that word? Rum, rumspringa? Oh, yeah, rumspringa. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's what I had, but I had it at 31, <laughs> right? So one of my favorite shows is um, that My Big Fat, or the My uh, my Greek. Big Fat Greek Wedding? No, or no, no, no. Um, my, oh, it's oh. like my uh, gypsy. Yes. My gypsy yes. wedding, but a lot of that is kind of that rumspringa. I'm sorry, go on. Yeah, so I went to, so at 31, now I have I think at that point I drink alcohol maybe twice in my life. Uh, never, Jeez. right? Never smoked um, Have you done all this now? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm We're not promoting like no, drinking or smoking. No, no. But. And I'm a control freak. So when it comes to like crazy drug stuff, I just can't do it because I, I got to be in control. I'm with you. But um, yeah, no, I, I grew up not even drinking coffee. Mm-hmm. So I went through this place where now I didn't have any rules that were externally put on me. Mm-hmm. And I had to figure out who I actually was. I had spent most of my life figuring out how to show up in any given room and mm-hmm. be exactly who you wanted me to be. And I was really good at it, mm-hmm. but that meant I had no idea who I was anymore. And so, um, yeah, it was just messy. I, I, I blew everything up and just totally changed the game. And that's funny when you say blew everything up. Cause I think most of us picture you literally like, you know, convertible, you know, beer in hand, hair blowing in the wind, but it wasn't that for you. It was a, it was, it was a healthy segue for the most part, right? It wasn't like you went out and started drinking wildly or no. sleeping around or which no. is what a lot of people would imagine one would do. You know, it's funny when you come from a Mormon upbringing, I guess it felt more extreme than what most people would see is extreme. So uh-huh. I moved to L.A. and I moved in with my boyfriend, mm-hmm. totally unheard, not unheard of in the Mormon church, but wildly unacceptable. Got it. Um, Considered extreme. Totally extreme. Mm-hmm. I broke the rules. Started drinking, thought that was kind of interesting, mm-hmm. not wild and crazy. I still had kids to raise. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just broke the norms, I guess you could say. And in that, I started realizing that there's a freedom that comes for me for saying, A, I'm wrong, or B, I'm not sure how I feel about that, so let me think about it. 
and I didn't have any like prescribed beliefs anymore. And I didn't know how to make decisions because I'd never really had to trust anything. I was just told what to do and I did it. Mm -hmm. So now I was in this open space where I could kind of create what I wanted. Mm -hmm. Ironically, the people that were the most friendly in LA were lesbians. They loved me. <laughs> I kind of loved them too. Uh, but but it was like this. It doesn't new, hurt that you're good looking. I mean, well, let's be honest. Yeah, so we all have a little bit of an agenda. I'm, Go ahead. A, I'm good looking and a little bit of a flirt. Uh, <laughs> but so now this, my world was now not just containing Mormon families that look like mine. It contained these people that I'm like, dang, these are really good people mm -hmm. who totally love me. Why did I ever think anything ill toward that whole population of people? Mm -hmm. And it opened my mind a little bit to be more aware of others and other people's experiences and that maybe I wasn't as I mean woke wasn't really a word then but maybe I really wasn't as aware and mm -hmm. I really wasn't as evolved as I thought that I was mm -hmm. does that make sense 100 percent sense yeah and you weren't because that's part of getting older and growing this is all again encouragement for the listeners this is part of the process of I want to I hate evolving but for me what I've learned and thank God for this is that the biggest Thing that I can do while I'm here is continue to feed myself with healthy things and continue yes. to learn and learn how to love harder and how to have more understanding and more compassion. And this is all, this is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So go on. And this is great because we still have a lot to cover, but I want you yeah. to take your time as you continue to, to round this off. Sure. So, you know, I left the church 13 years ago. It's still 13 years of getting the church out of me. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of conditioning in terms of worth and body issues and sexuality and things that were not talked about or not helpful the way they were spoken about that I'm still untangling. Mm -hmm. um, but I've also been able to open my life a little bit and understand that there's more than one way. And by questioning my own beliefs, I don't necessarily lose anything. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest challenge for me was if I if I was going to change my mind, if I was going to say this is wrong, or if I was going to even just not be Mormon anymore, that somehow I, it would be like a big loss to me instead mm -hmm. of just saying like, hey, I don't know, what do you think? Mm -hmm. That was not how I operated. So in doing that, it changed how I interacted even just with other human beings. Because I would imagine hindsight now, again, it's all about learning, learning and feeding your mind. So it wasn't that, you know, there was a loss there. It was that you were just learning more, a different phase mm -hmm. in your life and just contributing something different too, right? Yeah, and willing to learn. Yeah. I think that was the, the biggest shift is being willing to be open to learn. And even in that, you know, that said, if you jump from 31 to 44, I'm happily married for 10 years this week, by the way, on Hi, Thursday. Aaron. So funny. I was talking to Allie, and she was cracking up. She's like, oh, my God, the last time I saw them, I think prior to Nikki's wedding was when you got married. Yes. And yeah. we wanted, we brought you a box of rice aroni because we couldn't throw it because there was, a, but we were ready to throw you. <laughs> but was, you were ready. Yeah. I think, that, that was, was such awesome. an honor, by the way. Oh, that's Happy so anniversary. Thank Hi, you. Aaron. Yeah. Okay, go on. So happily married. We now have a child together, mm -hmm. and Aaron has a child from his first marriage. Like so there's Brady six, bunch. a total Brady Bunch. There's Jeez. six all together that um, call me mom. Everybody gets along? No. <laughs> nope. I guess that was a stupid nope, question. Nope, they right? don't. Um, but in our house, our rule is if you're going to be home and everyone else is home, you have to be courteous and kind. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be best friends. I hope the ones that don't get along will figure that out eventually and mm -hmm. get along. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're not perfect. So. And you know, from your experience, because you grew up with a, a Brady Bunch kind of, you know, lot of kids. Totally. And okay. I, so if you go all the way to now and into pandemic is what I was going to say is this, yeah, this really time. weird space of 
uh, being in a world where everything feels like it's changing or we have the ability and the potential to change things. Like Uh we had a big fat pause. And in March, it felt like we were going to have a pause that was going to last two or three weeks. Yeah. And now we're on like week 29 or 30. And And still hopefully halfway, if not uh, more. Knock on wood. Hopefully. Hopefully. Um, The reason your podcast was so interesting to me is because right around the time, well, maybe it was a little bit after it came out, but when uh, I heard the news of Ahmaud Arbery being... Mm -hmm basically hunted down and killed i i had this feeling of like i don't get it how does this this keep happening and then in the same breath it was such a uh, a difficult moment to stop and think about how absurd it was that i was still blown away that that still happens mm-hmm. and what a privilege it was for me to just be like wow i'm just shocked and you know that's so awful that it still happens when really it's been happening the whole time and people are recording it now. Mm-hmm. We're seeing it more now. We're talking about it more now. And I think there's this weird perfect storm, and I, I'm not alone in this. It's a typical white woman reaction in my circles where we had been feeling an ounce of oppression by being told we had to stay home. And I mean like an ounce, nothing like true oppression. But mm-hmm. we were feeling that cooped up anger and Ahmaud Arbery happened and we were angry about it and we wanted to start talking about it because gosh, they are right, black lives do matter and that is something we have to say. And then shortly after that, George Floyd was murdered and most of the world watched nine minutes of a man being murdered calling for his mom. Mm-hmm. And it's it sparked something in me and in some of the people that I'm around that was just undeniably urgent and important and we were late to the party but we showed up and realized that it's a time where we can speak talk about it listen learn and understand what it really means for our black brothers and sisters to live the same lives we're living but to be having completely different experiences and I didn't um I didn't get enough credence to that before and Mm -hmm. I think I was I've always been a uh, fan of the underdog. I've always been someone that will stand up for somebody who's being mistreated. I've always felt like I was, you know, quote unquote, anti-racist. My best friend in high school, Nicole Foster, was black. I played basketball, which means I played mm-hmm. with a lot of people that didn't have the same skin color as me. Mm-hmm. I, you know, grew up super poor before my mom made money. And so mm-hmm. I had all of these things in my back pocket that I like to pull out and be like, yeah, I love I love a couple black people. I'm yeah. not racist. Yeah. And the reality is the more I was willing to listen and learn, I did have some things I had to untangle that were not anti-racist, that, that were biases, that were things that were causing contention that I just wasn't even acknowledging. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you tip your water, I'm going to jump in. And, you know, a big if you read the mission statement on our website, it talks about underlining prejudice and bias. So, you know, yeah. that's what we're talking about. I'm going to ask you a question, and it's rhetorical, because I don't think you can answer this, right? But, sure. like, what steps got you to... To, to that conclusion because to hear you talk about it and to uh, kind of word it, I, I, I layman's is the best way I can put it. You, mm-hmm. you, you bring it down into just an easier way to describe what's going on and other people can't, it's too hard for them to, the, the concept is too tough for them. They don't mm-hmm. understand why Black Lives Matter and why there's a, a conversation about it. And so what, like, can you even, and again, you probably don't have an answer for that, but I'm just blown away a little bit because you put it so you put it there so 
so eloquently, very direct, and that is the issue. Privilege, watching it, seeing it, saying, yeah. saying, wait a minute, let me at least acknowledge this, let me process it. Okay, now how can I put that into some sort of action? And I'm not saying protest, but just the thought alone is can be considered action for people like me. That's yeah. all we want. We just want people to think about it and again, come from a place of understanding. So yeah. rhetorical question, I had a chance to rant there, but I'm just blown away at how you're able to articulate what that, that looked like for you. I think it really comes back to that whole, we're all invited to the process of evolution. I was willing to say, I'm not sure I'm doing this right, mm -hmm. um, which ironically is the name of the book I'm working on right now. I'm, I'm not, I don't, th uh, gosh, now I'm gonna trip myself up. This is the name of a book that you're gonna write? It's the name of a book that I'm ha it's halfway done. Yep. Wow. Pandemic's been good for that. I know, totally, uh, get creative. Yeah, no, I'm writing a book called I Think I'm Doing It Wrong. Okay. And it really is a process where at some point somehow, and I don't think I could tell you exactly where, but I realized that it was okay to just say, I don't know, yeah. and I might be wrong. Well, and you mentioned earlier, which I think is so important, is that you actually find it humbling and you kind of enjoy being wrong because it's an opportunity to learn. Well, don't tell my husband that. <laughs> I don't necessarily enjoy being wrong. But you know what I but mean, But I'm willing right? to be now, yeah. Right, yeah. maybe not enjoy, but you're you're open to it, and it's those yeah. all opportunities to learn. Yeah, totally. And I think that it's uh, it's easy to, for all of us to go back to our, our respective corners and be like, this is my tribe, this is my group, these are my people, this is my belief system, and live in a bubble. But in the world we're in right now, especially with the things that are happening, we cannot afford to live in a bubble, because if I live in a bubble, I can't do anything to help you. And all the bubbles are bursting. And all the bubbles are bursting. They're oh. all bursting. So so we're at this pause. We're at this reset. So what are we going to do with it? So for me and my house, it looks like uh, one of my daughters and I went into protest with um, all Black wow. Lives Matter. Was really? it all Black Lives Matter? The one that took place at, in Hollywood over... Pride, what Pride Weekend would have been. Right. Yeah. Right in downtown, right off of yes. on Vine. Yeah, yeah it yeah. was amazing. Uh -huh. And, you know, we we look for opportunities to be allies, to be spoken, uh, to speak about things, to discuss things, to be open about talking about things, because we could just sit there and, you know, change our own minds and not do anything about it, or we can make it normal to talk about. Do all of your kids fall in line with this Very ideology? Much so. wow. Very much so. And I always ask my guests, and you know this, um, so do you, you have hope for the kids. What's 20 years from now looking like? How do you feel about that? I have a tremendous amount of hope for uh -huh. our kids because I just, I think they know, in a lot of cases, they just know more than we do. Mm -hmm. I think that it's, uh, they have been brought up in a different world than you and I were brought up in. My eight-year-old, uh, we have a trans teenager that we're very close to in our family. Mm -hmm. My eight-year-old is the pronoun police because it doesn't make any sense to her if anybody gets it wrong. At eight years old? At eight, because that's Miles who, ahead of us. Miles. Or So here's a funny moment. She said to me the other day, um, what's a sugar daddy? I said, uh, what TV show are you watching? It's candy. <laughs> Go ahead. She said there was a joke on some TV show about a sugar daddy. And I said, well, sweetie, it's usually when there's a much older man who has a lot of money and he uh -huh. has a real young girlfriend. and he Or pretends to things. have a lot of money. Yeah, Go right. <laughs> you know what she said to me, Brian? She said, okay, well, why can't there be sugar mamas? Oh, there I is. said, well, you know what? There is. What do you think that looks like? She goes, well, why can't it be older women with all the money with the cute young boyfriends? I Get said, it, there girl. sure can. Get but it. that's the stuff where like, they don't have the social norms built into them where they've assumed something's supposed to be a certain way. Mm -hmm. 
So I think that with my generation, with our generation of people being more enlightened and more willing to talk about difficult things like race, pornography, um, white trans privilege, awareness. trans awareness, yeah. um, the more we're willing to talk about it and teach our children differently, mm-hmm. the tide is turning. I don't think it's turning fast enough or hard enough, but I know that it's turning. So yeah, I, I have hope. I'm scared, but I definitely have hope. I like it. The tide is turning. Hey, that, we'll we'll take it. You know, it's everybody. A it's a, everybody has a different answer, right? Everybody is. You know, it's nice because there's optimism attached to the answer, but everybody has a different answer, mm-hmm. and especially p- people with kids. Um, that's a very realistic response. Let's talk a little more about this relationship you have with this trans person in your life, and mm-hmm. uh, and an- another level of Mandy. Like, yeah. So, are all of your other? You did say your eight-year-old fell in line with this, with the mm-hmm. pronouns. Is everybody on board with this? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's uh, so. Our, I've. There are very few things that I will outwardly take pride in in my life. I'm. I tend to be a somewhat humble person. Mm-hmm. The way I've raised my kids and the way my husband and I raise our kids together, I'm very proud of. Mm. We, from a very young age, uh, started teaching them that the rules that we had in our family were important to us and our family, but that meant other people had different rules, and that that was okay. Yeah. And for me, coming out of the Mormon Church, that was really critical for my kids to not see someone doing something that was contrary to our family rules and to be judgmental about it, I'd rather they be curious about it. I'd rather they talk about it. I'd rather we just let everybody live the way they want to live. And so a few years back, well, gosh, no, now it's probably been 10 years. I went to my first pride festival or pride parade with a girlfriend of mine. Mm -hmm. And it was awesome. It was like the most love and joy in one place that I've ever been to. And so since then, I on and off would go and just enjoy it for fun. And a couple years back, I got involved with a group called Free Mom Hugs. Okay. And it's the organization right. that we get together with moms and dads. And uh, Pride is sort of our big event, but we do lots of side events over the course of the year. And we start typically at the opening of a Pride area Okay. for a celebration. And we welcome everyone in and we offer hugs and high fives and whatever people want just to make sure that there's some sort of motherly or fatherly presence that says, hey, I love you. I love you exactly how you are. You're perfect and wonderful. And at first I thought it was going to be very awkward and sort of uh, performative allyship. Ah, like, yeah, hey, I'm here to give you a hug. Parked like, on the corner. That's right. a very interesting word to describe it because yeah. I would, I get it. Go ahead. Yeah, I, that's what I was uh, afraid that it would feel like. But went anyway, went with a friend of mine. And I will tell you, I held a the one that I can remember crystal clear, this super tall, really big, beautiful man with short red hair. Mm-hmm. And he came running over to me and said, I want to hug. And I started to hug him. I love hugging. Mm-hmm. I will hug long, mm-hmm. deep hugs. Mm-hmm. I started to hug him and we were kind of swaying back and forth and he was giggling and then he started crying and then he started sobbing. Oh, damn. So I just held him and said, he was probably <sighs> late 20s. I just held on to him said, I love you. I'm so glad you're here. I love you. I love you. I love you. And it changed my life because mm. I will never again assume that somebody has what they need in terms of love and hugs. Support. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he got himself together. Let me interrupt you. Yeah. That was your first hug? Uh, it was in the first 
handful of hugs, but Jeez. it was the most memorable that day. And that, re- that day- It would have been the most memorable, period. Uh, but the fact that it happened within your first experience is so telling. Yeah, right. And You're then, on your path, So right? what, where I come from and the, the biases and beliefs that I still have or am untangling is that this big burly man is not going to be emotional. Yeah. He's going to be like, oh, this is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And he did at first, and then he- sobbed and just needed somebody to tell him he was loved by a mom yeah i've never had to question if i was loved by a mom i've never had to do that thank god thank god same here but i I, but so many people are and i i heartbreaking it was heartbreaking and it also made me realize that i can never again just assume and that i need to defer to somebody else's experience yeah and And try to have some understanding yeah put myself in your shoes exactly and i i felt that with the LGBTQ community. I felt that with my black friends and family mm-hmm. members. I felt that pull to instead of assume that I know what they want or assume I know how to be an ally to start asking questions and to defer to their experience. Yeah. I would never question if you said, hey, I want went to the, I had this happen once. A friend of mine went to the airport. She had a really horrible experience. She has the most lovely, beautiful dark skin I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. She explained it to some friends of ours. And another white friend pulled me aside and said, do you think she's really going through that? Or do you think she was just being a little too sensitive and thinks everything's about race? Mm. And it was a little bit of a smack in the face for me and a wake up call because this was someone I thought was a really good person Uh and and is a good person. Uh And I immediately said, "Uh, no, of course I think she went through it. And I've never had to do that. I've never had to walk the the world as a six foot tall, dark skinned black woman. Mm -hmm. And so I will, every time she tells me about her race, situation or experience i have to defer to her experience yeah i don't know better yeah and i will never know what it's like and i think that's hard for people sometimes to just defer we want to explain it away Mm -hmm. or we feel uncomfortable with it and so we have to make excuses that make it feel right in our white privileged heads somehow um if you witnessed that right if you were standing there and you saw that happen at the airport would you react and have you ever witnessed something where you had to get involved? I would definitely react now. I don't know that I would have reacted even two years ago. Uh-huh. Um, I absolutely would volunteer to help. I would absolutely pull up my phone. I would absolutely record what was happening. I would absolutely get involved. Yeah. Um, with your free mom hugs group and when you're out there on the, in the streets, did you have any uh, backlash from anybody? There had to have been a small group or somebody out there saying, you know, no. Um, no, you know, it was interesting. There were, there were protesters Mm -hmm. down the road and at a certain point we all sort of split up and just went to go wander the crowds and high five and hugs and whatever. Uh, (laughs) Go spread love. Yes. The, the protesters had some choice words for us. We just sort of laughed it off and kept going. But in terms of- But they had choice words for everybody. Everybody. Okay, go ahead. Everybody. Uh, but in terms of people that were coming in, no, most people were at least- you know, smiling or high-fiving and weren't interested in a hug, which was totally fine, but were glad to see us out there or fine with it. All right, let's let's move on to something else real quick because yeah. you mentioned this book that you're halfway through. Yes. That you're writing. Yeah. I mean, talk about using uh, COVID to be creative. Tell us more about what you do. Sure. Give us the big, broad picture because you do a lot. I do. <laughs> what do I do? I raise six kids. <laughs> um, I am I am really a very stereotypical cisgender heterosexual white privileged 
woman. I have six kids, four of them are still at home. Um, I write, I have a blog that I've been working on for a while and I'm a motivational speaker. So Mm -hmm. pre-COVID, I did a lot of work with women in terms of how to find yourself uh, in your 40s after motherhood. There's Mm -hmm. a, a, it's not just the church that helped me forget who I was or not really develop that. It was also being a mom and taking care of everybody around me. So I work a lot with women in sort of finding their strength and remembering who they are outside of the roles that we have as wives and mothers. So that's sort of where my passion is. Although I'll be honest, it shifted a lot in, in the pandemic. It feels more urgent to speak more or to do more work in evening the playing field yeah. that it, than it ever has before. Is so this, I don't know if I'll go back to just what I was doing before. The book you're writing, is this more about how you're feeling presently or about? Both. The book I'm writing is each chapter talks about a very specific concept that I thought was the way I should be doing something uh-huh. and then shifted and learned. So a lot of the stuff I'm doing, when you talk about, I can pinpoint the milestones in my life. It's mm-hmm. because I've been uncovering them as I work through how to not be an asshole and still survive in the world. Like, can, can that be the name of your book? I have thought about that. It's been <laughs> when I first started writing my blog. New York my, Times. Right? My good friend Jen Hadley said, you should just call your blog How to Not Be an Asshole. I was like, well, yeah, I suppose. Well, what's the mission? What's the objective with, with your book? Again, just that we can change our minds. That yeah. just because we were always doing something one way, it does not mean that that's the best way or the only way. And yeah. it's possible to change without losing anything good in your life you just gain you just gain there's no loss no ever no no it's not like it's a gains pie. on gains on gains on gains Absolutely. and that's one thing that's frustrating about when i have conversations with people or i watch how people interact with each other or their thought process if you know if i would try to understand it is that the it's obvious the idea of change is scary Right? Sure. There's so much fear wrapped around it, things of the unknown but for people like me and you africa for instance you know silly examples Yo, yeah. change is bomb. It totally is. And it's even, you know, in dealing with people, the way we talk to each other in social media, there's a way mm-hmm. to do it that you don't, I used to be a super keyboard warrior. And now if somebody pokes me enough and is just completely belligerent and an asshole, mm-hmm. I have no problem going toe to toe with them. But in talking to people and asking, why do you feel that way? What What is it that's making you think that way? Yeah. Tell me more about that. Instead yeah. of just coming at people to just constantly be right. Uh-huh. Uh, Brené Brown has a great quote. I'm here to, I'm not here to be right. I'm here to get it right. Love it. Right? Yeah. Like, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? I don't need to be right every time. And it's interesting because it's like, if you're uh, looking to be right, that means you're leaving something. But if you want, mm-hmm. if you, the opposite is to have something to take away. Yeah, right? I want to get this right. Yeah. I want to, I yeah. want more. Tell me more. Let mm-hmm. me learn more. And just shut up and listen. Like, we're so, now that I'm talking, you know, our ears off here. But ah, that's the point. We are, we are so wrapped up in listening so that we can quickly respond to somebody instead oh, of just listen. Well, right. But there's a difference between listening and hearing, right? 100%. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I've got a friend of mine who I was texting her and she still was responding confused. I'm like, you don't even listen through text. Right. Like, how yeah. is that possible? Um, Brene Brown, you're the one that turned me on to her. She is amazing. You're the one that you shared the vulnerability to talk with me and yeah. that cha- that helped change my life and I still share that. So thank yeah. you. I share that with a lot of my friends who um, need who are looking for a little perspective. Yes. Or just a little um, a little bit of a change. So um She's also the first motivational type speaker that I've ever really heard say, 
I'm re- I really suck at this right now. Yeah. I'm going to teach you about it. I'm going to tell you what I know. I'm going to tell you what the research says, mm-hmm. but I'm not great at it and I'm just trying to get it right. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was really empowering to see someone who was already a, a great New York Times you know, best-selling author. She speaks all over the world mm-hmm. and her being willing to just say, I'm not really sure I'm not good at this part yet was huge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know. And again, it's huge, but that's, I love this. That's the one thing I like about getting older is learning things that I didn't know, even if I had a shitty attitude prior and saying, okay, wow, never thought about that. You know what I mean? I have my own underlining prejudices prejudices and biases that I work on. You know what I mean? And again, at the the end of those small tunnels, there's little nuggets of info and little moments where I say, okay, you know, it all makes me a better person. Yeah. Um, I want to know what's in your notepad. Did you bring some notes? Is there some other, what are some things you might want to talk about? So I, we've covered a lot. We totally have. I, I want to cover more. I have ADHD brain and I knew that at some point I would say something and then forget where I was going. So I brought a notepad so I could literally scribble down a word to remember. And There's I didn't have to. We're There's doing so well. Word. We are doing well. <laughs> I noticed that about 20 minutes into the interview. I'm like, you follow we me well. On track. I yes. love it. I yeah. always have been. Yeah. Um, so let's take a step back to talking about hope because, you know, we, we, we touched on that, and I think for me, as a black man, I don't have kids, but it's hard for me to be able to pre- preach the, the, the spirit of hope mm-hmm. because of what I've seen. You know, I've had a lot of conversations with my white friends who uh, were like, oh, well, have you ever had any racist issues or instances happen? And I remember a vivid one when I was six, and this man, probably in his late 50s, uh, we were at the pool at the complex I lived in, and he held me down underwater and called me a nigger, right? Wow. So this is at six years old, right? But a lot of people today still just don't get it. And that's right. what scares me. Like I'm, I've had conversations with people about moving out of the country where, I don't know, racism's everywhere. Yeah. But I always, and I, I literally thought that it wasn't that bad. Yeah. And now seeing it, granted, you're right. It's being videotaped, so things are changed and more visible. But I, it's just, I'm seeing it left and right. Left yeah. and right fucking right and it's I tell my friends I'm a little nervous should I buy a gun let's move on to that what do you think about gun control that is so funny uh, that you ask because I am adamantly opposed to owning a gun even now well, I was adamantly. Because you're blackish you get a couple points today but you're blackish I was adamantly opposed to owning a gun my husband at the beginning of the pandemic said listen things are going to go sideways here and things are getting worse and worse and then again like i said the the one-two punch of ahmaud arbery and then george floyd and then all these riots were happening or not riots sorry that's the wrong word all of these protests were happening and then people in reaction to that were rioting and being crazy he is was nervous that things are going to go south so we do actually own a gun now and i have actually shot it and i'm not that bad oh my god not the answer i was expecting because the answer for me was if we're going to have a gun in this house i'm gonna call you mandy she's the g man g i'm the g uh that i had to be able to use it safely and he needs he obviously knew how to use it safely so yes we do now own a gun all right so then i always ask this question right so if you are in bed and somebody breaks in and the gun's in the closet locked in a safe that has a code how are you going to be able to get to that gun and make sure that all the rules of safety are followed how right how does all that work what does that look like i know that's a naive question but no it's not naive i think in a perfect world we all thought that like when i thought about owning a gun i thought about you know, someone has it right next to their bed and can quickly grab it and quickly do something with that. And that's not actually the reality. Mm-hmm. And so if I were in a situation, I listened to one of your podcasts where I want to say the 
person you were interviewing might have been law enforcement, but that he always asks about, are you ready to kill someone Yeah, if you're going to own a gun? Correct. And to protect my family, Mm -hmm. I will absolutely stop someone with a gun. I know that if I had it in my hand. The reality is that's not very likely. Someone breaks in in the middle of the night. I'm not going to, like you said, I can't go get it and undo it and check the safety and do all those things. I think in our house, it feels a little bit more of a protective thing in terms of if things really do go sideways and people are aggressively looking to take from other people, that it's almost a warning shot kind of a thing. All right, because that was my question. And I also thought this question was a little too direct and, and hard to answer, but you just did. You know, what is the worst case scenario? What do we have a gun now? What are we expecting? Right. And yeah. I think that what you said is what the majority of people are really fearful of. And that's people flooding into their neighborhoods, yeah, coming up to their houses and trying to take what's theirs. Yeah. And it's very scary. You said it though, the chance of that happening is it's very small. Right. But the more disruption that's happened, the more divided we've gotten, the more especially in this political climate, the more there are is one side or the other side to belong to. Mm -hmm. It is very scary and very intimidating. And I do think that the most dangerous people are truly the ones that say eh, racism doesn't really exist yeah. or say, no, I don't really think this political decision is going to make that much of a difference. And they're very apathetic about it because mm-hmm. they don't want to be uncomfortable and talk about it. Mm-hmm. I think those people are more dangerous than the people who want to, you know, like the Boogaloo boys. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, the KKK guys, those guys, at least we know what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, but the people that can be apathetic to it and just, I don't want to think about it because it's not really in my backyard maybe it doesn't really happen, I think that's more dangerous. And some could argue that those are the ones that rule the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or those, yeah. Some could argue that those are the ones that really are the uh, in control. Yeah. Um, and I would, my argument with that, or my co-sign to that co-signature would be, it's a gen, it's generational, you know? And I, I try to have empathy for a lot of people who are of a certain age and don't quite understand. You know, I really yes. try, I tr- do my best to try. And I think most of the time I'm fairly successful, but every now mm-hmm. and then I do have, I do slip up. I do think we're in a golden age of information too, though, where it's easy to have access to information to change your mind if you want it. Mm-hmm. So I had a conversation with my mom and one of my sisters, uh, maybe six months ago. And she was saying, I don't understand why uh, drag queen Uh, story time no story time because in the libraries right (laughs) i don't understand why that has to be a thing Uh my mom's always been very accepting of loads of people in different Mm -hmm. ways she in the 80s uh had a gay man that worked for her that was hiv positive that was open and she knew that and it was fine Mm -hmm. so i grew up thinking we were really open to people but she asked that it was really eye-opening for me and so we try to explain that drag is a form of art in a form of performance performance and try to explain it all to her and she didn't get it and then there's a show called we're out we're out what is it called shoot um, i'll look for it there's a show about drag queens that go to different small towns uh in america mm-hmm. to put on a show and they meet with a couple people from the town they try to help kind of change their minds it's a little bit like the queer eye for a straight guy was at the wow. beginning what what network is this hbo on? we're I, we're here that's what it's called we're i here. watch hbo all the time i need to watch this we're here go it's ahead super good and so i sent her the link to it and said mom check this out this is what 
drag is. This is part of what this is. She watched it. Now she's like, when can we go to a drag show? This is the Dude. coolest, most amazing thing. Because you she actually was willing like, to see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and then you had something to give her. Totally. But she didn't understand. She didn't understand because she didn't have a point of reference. But right mm -hmm. now, if you want to learn about anything, you can almost learn about anything for free. Yeah. But you, there are books we can read. There are shows we can watch. There's reality TV that is, you know, a little bit jaded, but at least gives you a view into what people's lives look like. Hold on, I'm just loving this, loving this, because, you know, I always ask my guests, I got I say that a lot, um, what are some things that we can leave listeners with, right? Yeah. And And you are really good at this. Um, so here's my question, It's I guess it's two in the same. That's one example of giving somebody something and that they, they learned from and had an aha moment. Can you think of anything else? That's something that might be related to Black Lives Matter or trans awareness? I know that's a tough question, but like... No, it's not tough. I'm just trying to think of one that's um, explainable enough to make a, an impact. I think in our own house, uh, white, white privilege has been an, a hot button conversation amongst the adults between both my mom and my... Uh, stepdad and myself and my husband and i want you to really hover on that as you talk go on sure Bec so here's why it was a, a hot button issue for me i am a writer i'm a speaker but the reality is most of my life right now is being a stay-at-home mom mm -hmm. and so i have a little bit of a different take on it than my husband who never had a college degree mm -hmm. he grew up in a family that was not supportive he did not have a wonderful childhood he did not have much of a leg to stand on getting out of high school. Mm. He was very self-made, started hustling, well, not hustling. I'm gonna paint a real colorful picture of my husband. You've been living in LA for a minute. We right? all know what you mean. You know what I mean. <laughs> uh, he's doing his thing since he was 19, trying to make good money. Yeah. And he's been very successful, but only because he had the, the stick-to-itiveness. And tenacity. And the tenacity to keep going. And yeah. now he's in a position where he's, uh, one of the regional managers for a company that he oversees a, t a small team mm -hmm. and his company literally does not exist quite the same without him in, in it today. Mm -hmm. And he makes great money and he supports our family so that I can stay home and write. Mm -hmm. He struggled with the concept of white privilege in that no one gave him a leg up. Mm -hmm. For me, I grew up initially poor. Then my mom made a great deal of money. She helped me and my sisters through our young adulthood financially we had lots of legs up mm -hmm. and i'm white blonde blue-eyed pretty white girl and that's your leg up yeah oh it's all, oh i know how huge. to work a room huge I, leg yeah up. absolutely absolutely and i've used it before so with my husband he felt like how do i say white privilege is a thing when really i worked my ass off to get where i am and i'll be honest i struggled with it too years back when i was trying to sort of understand what it meant and and untangle why I felt a funny way about it because it made me feel guilty like I should hide the good things that I had and a lot of people come from that yeah of thought. it feels uncomfortable it's kind of like being the rich kid growing up you you hide it a little bit because you don't want anyone to think you're different than them mm -hmm. um, or that you have more things and so it felt very uh, guarded and what we came to was that with white privilege Aaron worked his ass off to get where he is but one of the issues he never had to encounter was the color of his skin. Mm -hmm. So it didn't take away anything. It took away nothing from his accomplishments, his ability to do all of the hard work he had to do. But one stepping stone he never had to get around was having dark skin. Mm -hmm. And so being able to understand that and 
make peace with that it didn't take anything away. What it really did was just say, hey, I didn't have that obstacle. And then how can we remove that obstacle for people around us? It doesn't mean throwing someone a bone to get them into a position they're not qualified for. It means opening the door and letting people come in and making sure we're looking for opportunities for everyone. It doesn't mean we're like somehow skyrocketing people of color to places that they're not prepared for or they're not qualified for, they're taking someone's spot. It Mm -hmm. means acknowledging that we never had to deal with that and trying to sort of level the beginning starting point. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It makes 100% sense. And one of the takeaways for me from what you just said is that everybody is always scared that something's going to be taken away from them. Yes. And this, the level of entitlement that comes with that school of thought alone is something that really needs to be investigated. Absolutely. Um, and I've had conversations with friends talking about kids who haven't been able to get into certain colleges because, uh, you know, the, the, whatever their GPA was or wasn't, there was a black kid who, you know, I think it was like 70% of the school was white and they had to allow 30% of mixed race kids in. Right. Examples like that. It's it's really heartbreaking because to really just look at the plight of, of black people or people of color and not be able to just connect the dots yeah. is is, is my, mind-blowing. Uh, my cousin, I always mention her in this conversation, love you, but she didn't understand my privilege and it upset mm. her and I tried to explain to her, like, when I go, when I'm pumping gas or when I'm doing just mm-hmm. something silly and stupid, you know, some friends we were talking, they were out golfing, and one of the, somebody who lived on the golf course went out there with his hands on his hips and just watched him with disdain. Like, it's shit like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not necessarily about opportunity. It's not reduced to that. No, when um, Ahmaud Arbery's birthday came, there was a big movement to do Run With Mod, and that it was a certain amount of miles that everybody did together on a certain day. And so I went out and did it, and I did it with the premise in my head that I'd go by myself, I wouldn't listen to music or a podcast, mm. and that I would be aware of my surroundings as though... I was not white and I didn't have, you know, pale skin Mm -hmm. and be more aware of what it might feel like if possibly I could walk in those shoes. And I'll tell you what, it was a really eye-opening experience. It was really uncomfortable for me because when people would pass me, it was an immediate reaction of, oh, would I react differently to that person or would I have stayed that close? Or people were driving by there. I live in Rancho Cucamonga. There are tons of white trucks. Mm -hmm big trucks with big wheels and that was who hunted down Ahmad Arbery mm-hmm. someone in a big white truck every time I saw one it made me nervous and I didn't realize how many white trucks we had and then as I was rounding the corner to go back to my house there was a big white truck with a confederate flag and an American flag mm. and it made me want to vomit and I, I, in the past I would have seen that and not been in the right frame of mind of trying to absorb it from someone else's uh standpoint I would have just thought that guy's an asshole Mm -hmm. and to see it and to be in the frame of mind of trying to even sort of put myself in somebody else's shoes was um life-changing it's important to hear everyone wants to be heard and seen it's important to hear stories that are not like ours it's important Mm -hmm. to see people's experiences and defer to them and realize that those experiences are happening and find ways to bridge the gap so that they don't happen as often Mm -hmm. and hopefully you know one day they really just don't happen. It's really uncomfortable to be racist again. I'd really like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in 2020 in Rancho Cucamonga, Southern California, pretty shocking, you know, but again, yeah. it's, the, it's the time that we live in. Right? It is. It's, it's been safe now to, <clears throat> to wave that flag. Yeah. It's fucking bizarre. Thank you for um, sharing that. Thank you for taking the time to try to uh, have more understanding 
you know, because that's what we need. That's why you're here. That Now I really see also why you're like, yeah, I really would like to come on the podcast because you yeah. were just, you have a lot to offer. I'm going to get, we're going to get you back. I'd love to come back. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get you back. Now, we talked earlier about some things. Again, we want to leave listeners with something, that they, uh, a nice takeaway. Is there anything that you can add to that? I think really just be willing to change your mind. Just be willing to consider that you might not be right or mm-hmm. that you might see something a little bit different mm-hmm. and use the information that's out there. There, you know, I've listened to your podcast. There are tons of books people have offered up. There are lots of ways you can institute change, but it really starts with being willing to just approach it differently. Mm-hmm. Is there a TED Talk or a book you can think of just that might just help people? Yeah, totally. I am uh, halfway through right, right, White Fragility. Uh-huh, yeah. You know, that gets mentioned all the time. It's a really dense, very excellent book. Okay. Um, and Brené Brown has a special on Netflix. If you just go to Netflix and, and type in Brené Brown, it'll pop up her special. Uh, talks about vulnerability, and it expands on what happened after she was vulnerable in her TED Talk. Mm. It's really interesting because it talks a lot to my desire to be willing to change. Yeah. Because that TED Talk was like one number one download or one of the top fives. Yeah. So a big change after for her after that. Absolutely. What a great story to follow. Yeah. And yours as well. All right. So uh, big thanks to Mandy Burnett for being here. I'm just uh, still kind of high from our conversation. I hope you are as well. You know where to find us. Uh, make sure to uh, like us on Facebook, Instagram, all those beautiful platforms. Do your part. Love on yourselves and each other. We love you, don't we? We do. We, we love do. you. We love you. We'll see you soon. Have a good one. I am absolutely confident that you continue to do your part. Thank you for listening to another episode of Do Your Part. I work at staying awake. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment. Stay connected with Brian Gallo through social media at Do Your Part Podcast or visit doyourpartpodcast.com.